thought I would share today a little bit about this phrase that many of us know, which is the middle way. Uh, most people have heard this phrase uh, even before encountering the teachings. It's fairly commonly used in our culture. Well, let's try to find the middle way. But one thing that can happen is that when we have a phrase that we've already heard, then we may assume that we know what it means and just assume. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what the Buddha meant when, specifically when he said that phrase in his teachings. And then um, also talk around a few of the different ways that it's used, uh, even within now the way we share the teachings. So the Buddha actually used the middle way or the middle path in his very first discourse. So that's you now that maybe points to the importance of it. And it refers specifically to two particular extremes to be avoided. So I'll just read what it says. These two extremes ought not to be practiced by one who has gone forth from the household life, which just means we could say it's those of us who are on the path. What are the two? There is devotion to sense pleasures, which is low, coarse, the way of ordinary people, unworthy and unprofitable. And there is devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. Avoiding both these extremes, I have realized the middle path. It gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to calm, to insight, to enlightenment, and to nibbana. And what is that middle path? It is the Noble Eightfold Path, namely wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. This is the middle path. So it's interesting, right? He specifically is talking about a path of practice or a way to conduct our life, right? There is no path associated with the path of sense pleasure. It's just the one that we usually do, right? Our usual way. So the Buddha actually didn't separate those two. Um, He basically says, you know, we're always practicing something. As long as we're doing actions, (coughs) those actions are bearing fruit and having results. And so we have a choice. We can do the usual action of trying to get as much pleasure and avoid all the displeasure. Or um, he offers another option that's more fruitful in the long run. I like the word unprofitable. Um, You know, we might say, ooh, we don't want to use business kind of language. But um, profit implies that you get more out than you put in. You put in a little bit and it bears fruit. You plant a seed and you get 50 apples on your tree. The Eightfold Path is like that. What we do is so simple. We sit, we pay attention to the breath, we don't have to do so much, and the result is so amazing, right? It transforms our relationships, it calms our hearts, we see all kinds of things about ourselves. It's really profitable, (laughs) I could say. And it's not, it's not one for one. You don't have to put in like one minute on the cushion means one minute of better relationship later. You get way more out of it than that. So I like this. I like this word. 
And it's interesting that threading the way down the middle is like it's like finding that sweet spot where you get to go fast. You're not bumping against the edges all the time. I should mention, I guess, the other unprofitable path, which is the path of self-mortification. We don't really have in our culture um, people so much who are devoted to you know, believing that they need to totally suppress everything about the body and beat it down in order to find the transcendent reality. Um, it's not so typical, at least not like it was in ancient India. And yet, uh, there is this in Christianity, in Judaism, and in the monotheistic religions, there is this idea somewhat. So we have it in our cultural milieu, some of us at least. And also, I've noticed in people that we tend to practice self-mortification through self-deprecation and self-diminishment and self-criticism. We spend a lot of time believing that we're not it, we don't have it, we're terrible in some certain way. And what does this say? This path is painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. Just so you know. (laughs) So part of, for example, part of wise intention, the second step on the Eightfold Path, is the intention of loving kindness and of compassion. And the third of the wise intentions is letting go of sense pleasures. So right there, built into the path, is a sense that we would have love and compassion and respect for what we're undertaking. So this is what the middle path refers to. But, of course, there are, um, there are other extremes that we're told not to fall into in the teachings. Um, for example, this one about wise effort presented as a little bit of a paradox, but I really like this one. So the Buddha's talking about how he crossed over the flood, which means how he overcame greed, hatred, and delusion in his mind. And he says, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. So these are extremes, which we, I'm sure, have also seen ourselves falling into. Pushing forward is when we're like, i got to do it, I'm going to create it, I'm going to sit down and make myself be concentrated. Has that ever really worked? Uh, but we're often in this mode of doing, creating, pushing. And he says, when I did that, I was whirled about. <laughs> I can get that. <laughs> I understand what that is referring to, right? That feeling of just getting driven. But then he doesn't say that the answer is to just stay in place. He says, when I stayed in place and did nothing, I sank. Right, that's what happens in the water. And similarly in our life, if we're not putting out any effort to do anything, probably not much is going to happen, really. So we do need to act. But this is a quote about wise effort, about finding a balance in the way we apply ourselves to our practice, to our work, to our relationships. We can feel that also, you know, there's a sweet spot where we are actually bringing ourselves, offering ourselves, putting some energy, but not in a way that's about controlling, making, doing, being in, you know, making it happen. And then maybe one more that I'll mention is that the Buddha did have another middle phrase. He talked about teaching the Dhamma by the middle. That was something that he specifically said multiple times. And that is more about views than about what we're doing. Um, 
these prior things I've been talking about have been falling into kind of extreme ways of approaching things. It's also we can approach things in extreme ways with our mind. I guess you could say it that way. And so he talked about um, his teaching is in the middle between the views of technically eternalism and annihilationism, but more practically we could say that there's a view that everything is kind of independently, inherently existent. There are people, there are things, there is the world, and I'm a little being trying to navigate around it. He says this is actually an extreme view, (laughs) the extreme view of separateness, of individual action in an external world. And we might say, well, I don't really go around proclaiming that kind of philosophy, but very often it's in the back of our mind, because this is kind of how we've grown up, and it's normal that we teach children, you know, this is a cup, this is a bell, you're, you're responsible for your own actions, you need to walk through the world and figure out what you're doing. So we've been taught this. But it's not, when we start to meditate, we realize that's not actually quite how it is, right? We can't quite feel the edges of our body when we're sitting. We start to realize that a lot of how we are and who we think we are was created by the relationships we have with other people, with our you know, job, with other things. It's like, it's not quite clear where the boundaries of things are, and they can change, and they're dependent on conditions being there that we're not entirely in control of, so we can't quite say all of who we are and what we are and what things are. So it is kind of an extreme to see things as inherently real, separate objects. Now, the alternative to that is to say something like, well, it doesn't really matter, nothing's really real, it's not really clear how anything affects anything else, Everything arises kind of randomly, and I don't really know how it works. And the Buddha says, well, that's not really true either. Um, There are laws that are going on here. This is not a randomly um, unreal kind of situation. Um, There are real effects to actions, and they unfold in particular ways. Karma unfolds in particular ways. We're not, our brain isn't quite big enough to comprehend the whole thing in a rational way, But there are these laws, and we can see them in our own lives. If we're killing, stealing, lying most of our lives, we're not going to be happy. It just doesn't work that way. And so there are ways that we can have some influence about how things flow. So the Dhamma by the middle is this teaching on conditionality, that things are there when the conditions for them are there. And when those conditions end, the thing can't be there anymore. It falls apart. We are like that, too, as somewhat fluid entities that we're dependent on this body in this particular situation, and whether we call ourselves a teacher, a student, a parent, a child, depends on the circumstances, right? We all have many roles that we're in. And so, therefore, we have, at least we have a path. We have a path where we can say, okay... I have a sense that if I behave ethically, I'll be happier and things will go better for me. And then we do, and it does. And I understand that if I sit and meditate with mindfulness, I'll start to have insights about how things work, and that will improve my wisdom, and I might be able to let go of some of the things. And we can start to kind of change our understanding and our way of being in line with the way these laws actually are. So the Dhamma by the middle goes between these extremes.
would add then that um, finally to, to round out our sense of this balance and this middleness because I worry about that word middle it sounds like we're always just supposed to find the average we're always just supposed to be not too far this way not too far that way it sounds kind of boring <laughs> you know just always go down the middle don't do too much either way um, this is, a, of course, not what was meant in the teachings necessarily, but our mind can do that with words like that, because we want it to be clear. We want to just decide that it's one way. So I'm going to say also that another approach to avoiding extremes, the problem with extremes is when we only do one of them. You know, we fall into this one way of being, and then that's got to be it. Sometimes extremes, avoiding extremes, means that we hold everything, even things that are opposites. We make our mind so big that it includes absolutely everything. We're not trying to find that one little way down the middle. We're trying to hold absolutely everything and allow that to help us find our way. So, for example, um, having a lot of pain, which we may have in our body at times in our life, that can actually be the object of concentration which produces a lot of joy. We can have pain and joy at the same time. So instead of just being stuck with this one aspect of our experience, which is this large amount of pain, we open to the fact that the mind can experience all kinds of stuff, and we say, why not joy also, or peace also? And we hold the entirety of the um, possibility of the human mind at once. Another example is trying to make a difficult decision with a lot of different components. You know, people say, well, should I pay attention to what my sister says? Should I worry about my own future? What about this? What about the money? What about this? Etc. And it's like all these different things, and we have no, we figure like we can't make this decision. Well, open wider. <laughs> make it, make your mind so big that all those different forces that are pulling you this way and that are all in the same room and let them kind of pull and push on each other. This is not an easy practice necessarily. But I found that when doing that, sometimes some little thing will open. Either one of them becomes clear. It's like, okay, this is this is actually the one. Or they combine in some new way for an option that I had never thought of. And that was only possible not be, be, because I didn't say, oh, every one of these is an extreme. I'm going to cut them all out and just go down and find the, the average, the compromise where nobody's happy. <laughs> How about um, holding them all? So that's another way of avoiding falling into any extreme, is to hold all the extremes. Now, that does require a skill, the skill of mindfulness, of strength of awareness, so that all of that can happen while I'm still sitting there aware and letting it bubble up. Lest this sound impractical, um, this is exactly what needs to be done to develop compassion. So we, we learn the teachings, and we learn to be very equanimous, and we learn that there's anatta, and there's no real true self, because we can't find any uh, inherent existence to all of our different roles in our body and the changing things. So why would you bother having compassion for beings? Beings don't exist, really. But this is the way that we, this is actually the deepest development of compassion, is to have compassion for all beings, even though they don't exist. Mm-hmm. This is more of a Mahayana idea, but it says, you know, how can the Bodhisattva work for the benefit of all beings? 
and sacrifice themselves completely for the welfare of everybody in the universe? And the answer is because they know that there are no beings. So you can chew on that one. This goes, I mean, this is like I crossed over the flood by neither pushing forward nor standing still. You can also say, well, how does that work? So I think we're meant to be pulled a little bit by these teachings. So not to be, to be pulled into an extreme is partly to collapse down onto just one option and think this is it, because that's what we want to do. We so much want to just hold on to that one thing. Just tell me the one truth that I can hold on to and I'll never have to think again. It'll be easy. But what we're learning instead is not to fall into an extreme like that, to be able to either thread our way down the middle of the things that are pulling on us or to just open and and hold it all so that we can know in each case what's appropriate. Because there aren't there aren't abstract rules like that. It's always this moment, what's appropriate in this moment. So may your strength of awareness grow so that we can always see what's next, hold what we need to hold, and keep walking this middle path. Thank you. I we're about at the end, but if anybody had any comments or questions, yes. Who are you? Who am I? I really don't know. <laughs> I see, yes. Um, Bob is the usual teacher for this session, and he is out of town for a couple months, so my name is Kim Allen. I'm one of the other teachers at ISC, and I'm going to be here actually for, I think, three Tuesdays, the next three Tuesdays and maybe some other ones, but we'll have other teachers also subbing for Bob in his absence. Who are you? (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) That's good. That's what I thought. (laughs) What's your name? Christy. Christy, it's nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. (laughs) A lot of wisdom in this room today. (laughs) Alice. So... um, it's really interesting to, to think about the idea of going from being overwhelmed with too many thoughts and too many choices and not knowing what to do to holding everything. That's a very interesting concept to me. And what happened to me very recently was I was in that place of being I don't know what to do, I don't know how to think about this I don't know how to choose blah 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 blah. and finally I said get your ass out the door and I got in my car and I drove over to West Cliff and all of a sudden my heart opened, I didn't do anything, I just got out the door and to a place that allows me spaciousness. And with that, um, it became clear where the next thing was. And that was all I needed to do, was to open to that possibility, to get myself in the conditions that would allow me to open to that possibility. Thank you. It's beautiful. You did do something. You got in the car and drove to Westwood. Right. <laughs> uh, 
What a great idea. <laughs> what a great idea. We could all do that. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.